Please follow along with me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, They fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise 
and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. So even though that was such a wonderful reading and we have such a great amount of things to do today in the text, I just want to share something from my heart a little bit about the current season that we're in as a church. And uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you may remember uh, that we have been mentioning that we feel like we are in a season of visitation. And I want to give kind of a corrective to what I think is the way that that's being perceived. And when I, when I was saying that we are beginning to be entering into a season of visitation, I, I think I said, but I, I hope to highlight, that I believe we're being invited to a season of visitation. And the invitation is not the same as the attendance. And so I would just encourage you that if you're not preparing yourself, if you're not praying for a renewal from the Holy Spirit, then, then you're not really entering into what I feel as a church we're being asked to do by God, is to, is to begin to prepare ourselves and to begin to prepare ourselves in such a way that we learn practical things about how it means to walk in the light and to walk in the Spirit, walk according to the Spirit. And so I would just encourage you that uh, prophecy, when it's given, is not definitive. Uh, if you look over and over again, in fact, we're going to see it in this passage today, uh, many prophecies of the Old Testament were not fulfilled in a way that they could have been fulfilled, but they were fulfilled in a way that was true to the original prophecy. That might sound confusing to you because you, you think prophecy is future telling, but prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's telling what he wants to do. And part of that work of redemption that Jesus wants to do is in, uh, necessarily involves us preparing ourselves and becoming ready for that. So I just want to... Um, to read a, a verse or two, uh, there, at the very same way, uh, in the very same time that we're being invited into this season, uh, I want to share something from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you quickly. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Uh, just as we are in this, what I believe is an invitation to a season of visitation, that would sell if you put a bumper sticker together, it rhymes even. Uh, I, it, coincidentally, we've encountered a massive uh, outbreak of sickness. In fact, some of the people that I know who've lived in Ohio for a long time, they've never seen 
this sort of cold or flu or what have you. That, that is, this season is especially pronounced. And I just want to encourage you with two things. Uh, if you get sick, that does not mean that you're outside the will of God. Sickness is a result of the fall of Adam, not the fall of you. Now, some people, the New Testament says, can sin in such grievous ways that by participating in the Lord's table or by uh, doing something that is grieving the spirit that they encounter coincident or um, sorry, not coincidental, uh, circumstantial judgment, consequential judgment. You can think of Ananias and Sapphira. They lie to the apostles and they die on the spot. And I'm just so thankful that the Lord has been more merciful to me than that. But the point is that there are times when judgment follows sin, but not all sorts of sickness is necessarily judgment. And the other thing that I would say, like this passage, for he delivered us of such a deadly peril and he will deliver us, sorry, in verse nine, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Never waste a trial. The Puritans have this phrase that I think is deeply helpful is they talk about the necessity for Christians to make a godly improvement upon their temptations. What does that mean? It doesn't mean to simply not sin in the moment when you're tempted. A lot of us think that that is the goal of facing temptation is just not to do that thing. But actually temptation is a gift to, uh, to you from God in this, that he wishes to return or turn what the enemy is trying to do in your life and actually completely reverse it and bring a blessing instead. And the way that you make a godly improvement upon temptation is by humbling yourself and learning how to pray. Learning how to pray is the most important aspect of what I think this season of visitation is about. Personal spiritual disciplines, but mostly the ability to pray, to have communion with God, not just on Sunday mornings, but as a day-by-day and hour-by-hour lifestyle. And I really think that God is, um, is wanting to highlight that, and he wants us to get it right. You know, sometimes when we think we have the wrong views of the Father, and so we think that God is this harsh taskmaster, and he's correcting us that we don't pray enough, really what it is is actually the Father is a good Father. He's the only good Father, and his heart is so lovingly predisposed to you that not only did he give his Son, he sent forth a deposit of his Spirit into you who he has adopted, and the lack of prayer breaks his heart more than it angers him, because you're keeping yourself from communion with him, which is the most important thing you could ever have in your life. So I would just encourage you, especially if you've been sick the last few days and you've been kind of despairing, and don't despair in those moments. In fact, you know, I, I don't want to make this like a badge, like I survived the, the cold of 2017 or something like that. But I want to encourage you that some of the sweetest times in the fellowship of God that I've ever had have been at the point where I've been never been sicker before, if you will. Now, I, I don't think that that means we should just lovingly run into every sickness we can have. That's, that's not the point. But it's to make a godly improvement upon your temptations. Okay, so with that being said, I want to get into today. Today is the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany. It's the first Sunday before Lent. And this is a wonderful time to be uh, engaging this passage for a number of reasons. Uh, One of them is I think it fits with where we're at culturally as a church in some ways, but it also is deeply encouraging because the writer of this gospel, Matthew, has woven together a number of themes that are so beautiful and, and 
Sometimes, as you could tell today, we read from two different chapters, and we didn't read a whole chapter at all, because that's really where the beginning and the end of this passage come, uh, you know, necessitates. That is, Jesus begins with a question about the Son of Man and who he is and what's going to happen to him, and then all throughout the encounter, before, during, and after the transfiguration, we see what is going to happen to this one, the Son of Man. And so therefore, this message is entitled, The Glory of Christ in the Shadow of the Cross. And I want to encourage you that this passage is one of the most clear examples of poetic or uh, literary devices in the book of Matthew. It's so precious to me because of what it is doing in explaining Jesus Christ, not only as the Messiah, that is the Christ, not only the Son of God, but also the Son of Man. And the Son of Man does not mean his humanity. It means that title of Daniel chapter 2, really the entire book of Daniel deals with this theme, that the Son of Man is the one who receives the kingdom. And not only receives the kingdom, goes up to the Ancient of Days to receive that kingdom. And so what John, or sorry, what Matthew is doing in this passage, faithfully recording the words of Jesus, is Jesus is wanting to highlight that A, they don't understand the scriptures, but B, what they think about what's going to happen to him is completely wrong. That was kind of a little bit related to this idea that sickness is not necessarily the sign of God's disfavor. And that's what Peter gets into today. We're going to see how Christ dismantles that. So I want to look at five elements today. First, Jesus as the Christ, that is, he is the Messiah, and also he is called the Son of God. Those two titles we today think are synonymous. We think Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name, and Son of God is like what he might have on his like Twitter handle or something like that. They're not synonymous at the beginning of the New Testament writings. These are two separate threads in the Old Testament. These two ideas that God needs to fulfill his promise to David to give him a king who would live on that throne forever. And the other thing is that God would able to become uh, one who dwells among his people. We're going to see how those two are formed uh, or are unified in Christ his person and work. I want to look at the necessity of his sufferings. And here is where, although I don't often advocate focusing on one specific word of a verse, I want to say that what Matthew summarizes in, I believe, verse uh, 17. Uh, no, it's not verse. I'll get, we'll get to it. Uh, that, that Jesus Christ says that he must suffer. We're going to look at the necessity of that in four separate ways. I want to look at the nature of Christian life as a necessity to take up your cross and deny yourself, and that those Christians who do not do such a thing are actually false professors. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into detail. That's a lot more gracious than it sounds. I want to look at the glory of Christ in the transfiguration. It's interesting, but we're actually doing so much backstory to understand the transfiguration in context. Uh, most of the Western church, that is the Protestant Catholic church, everything that's not Eastern Orthodox, if you will, uh, downplays the significance of the transfiguration. I think that's an error. I think it's an error because understanding what Jesus experiences in this transfiguration highlights what is going to happen in the cross. That's the whole point of this message, is that if you don't understand the glory that's being revealed, that Jesus Christ is being, in even a small way, revealed in his heavenly glory at this time, to see that this one goes down to the place of the cross is remarkable. It's not just to pay for sin. 
It's not just to do the will of the Father. It's to accomplish the joining together of the people of God. And that is why Jesus Christ is able to face these sorts of sufferings, which is the last thing we're going to look at. Not only the Son of Man's necessity, but also his delight in suffering. So that being said, I want to get into the text. Jesus uh, begins at verse 13. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, again, that is a title from Daniel chapter 2, sorry, Daniel chapter 7 uh, through 9. And the Son of Man is a title for someone in the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies. And so what Jesus is doing to his disciples is he's asking them, what is the popular notion of the identity of the Son of Man? That is, who do the people commonly interpret as being the Son of Man? And then they go on to say, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, etc. And his actual intention is to ask them something much, much deeper. He says in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? The question is not, have they a right understanding of Scripture in some detached, factual alone deciphering of the text? but do they understand who Jesus Christ is in his person? Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is Simon, son of Jonah or son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Isn't this a perplexing verse? This should be confusing to you if you remember where we started at in the season of Epiphany. We started in the season of Epiphany with the baptism of Jesus Christ and then the calling of the disciples. And we see in John chapter 1, which we preached, at, uh, preached about uh, just a few weeks ago, less than eight, I think it was only six weeks ago, we preached that Andrew actually went and told Simon, who is Simon Peter, we to- he told him that they had found the Messiah. And the word Messiah is the Christ. And so here he says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, you're blessed because men haven't told you this. And plainly in John 1.41, Andrew tells Simon that he is, that they've found the Christ. I think that's it. I fa- I, we found an error in the Bible. It's time to pack it up. <laughs> Isn't that so often what happens in the atheistic world today? They, they take our wonderful and beautiful scriptures and they distort them to their own ends. The point of what Jesus is doing here, he is telling Simon that there has been a spiritual transaction that is that Jesus says that Simon is blessed of heaven because he has profitable saving knowledge of who the Messiah is. That is, you can hear the words, Jesus is Christ, and then you can write that down on a piece of paper and say that the Bible says that Jesus is the Christ. But all the while, in your heart, you don't believe it. and your mouth, you won't confess it. You won't take on the name of the Lord because you are still at rebellion with God. You see, Peter, or Simon at this point, does not receive information from Andrew that performs a regeneration That can only be done from heaven. And in fact, this is exactly what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. Later on in chapter 6, he says, All those who come to me are drawn by the Father. All those who come to Jesus Christ do so because of the grace of God being operating in their life. If anyone comes to Christ through your ministry, it is not your fault. (laughs) 
It, it is your responsibility, though. Work that one out. Only those who are born of the Spirit can enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, in his encounter with Nicodemus, says, you must be born of the Spirit. John, in John chapter 1, says that those who did receive him, God had given them the right to become children of God. You see, you're not born of your own will. Before you were born, you did not come together and say to your parents, hey, here's a, I'm this pre-incarnate John Weiss. Get together, mom and dad. I want to come into the earth. The whole analogy of the new birth is to drive home the point that the Spirit of God alone can perform regeneration. I was reading an interesting book last night by Charles Finney called Experiencing Revival. And I think it's wise from time to time to read outside of your normal theological streams. Because every once in a while you see some truth that you can't see in your you know, former paradigms. And one of the things that he said last night that blew me, I, I got up out of my chair and I walked around confused. He said that if Jesus himself should return and preach to men, no one would be saved without the Holy Spirit. And I instantly was like, he's right. He's right. Jesus is the one who tells Nicodemus, you have to be born of the Spirit of God. Now, that's not to say that Jesus is not deity. It's just to say that Jesus' mission, part of his task in redemption, is not to perform regeneration. That is the Spirit's goal, the Spirit's glory, the Spirit's work. And the point is that Jesus is saying to Peter, to Simon at this point, Peter in a second, that you have received this from heaven. That is the only way that you can receive any truth at all. What's so interesting to me in this literary understanding the text and probing into the importance of the narrative and the structure and what we see, look at this foil of what happens. Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon confesses correctly, and then Jesus begins to declare to Peter. Do you guys remember Weeks and weeks and weeks ago, when we saw Peter being called, he said, you are Simon Bar-Jonah, you shall be called Peter. This is amazing to see. Catch this. He says, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. Look at this. In verse 17, he says that you are Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And then he continues and says, and I tell you, you are Peter. If you ever get a hold of this, it begins to unlock everything that goes on with Jesus and Peter. This same sort of pattern is at work when Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me. And then Peter says, I'm not going to deny you. And then Jesus says, you're going to deny me and I've prayed for you. And when you've returned, strengthen your brothers. For they all were going to follow, fall away. And then we go all the way to the restoration of Peter in John 20 and 21. And Peter comes to the Lord and the Lord says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Then Jesus does again. There's this call and response between Jesus and Peter. And what Jesus is doing is he is establishing Peter in his identity as one who has found the identity of Christ. This is so radically important for an age in which we live today, in which fatherlessness and broken homes are rampant and are not only statistically large, but also culturally are becoming dominant. They're becoming encouraged. Look at the sitcoms that you see. There's one called Modern Family. If you have ever seen that, it, it should break your heart. Now, I'm not against all forms of TV, but as so far as Modern Family is a barometer of where the cultural understanding of what family is supposed to be, 
Woe are we if we do not begin to understand the nature of God as a redeeming God, as a father. And so Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter. Remember how we saw at that time that the renaming of someone is a claim to divinity. But it's not just a simple claim to divinity. It's a claim to Peter that now you've found out who you really are supposed to be. That is, when Peter confesses Christ, Christ then says to Peter, you're finally at home. You finally arrived. The work that I've been doing in you, the work of regeneration that is supposed to come to you, is, is happened. You've been blessed from heaven. This is amazing to me. He then says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Uh, most of the manuscripts in this passage that we have can be translated, shall have been bound or shall be bound. And what I think is actually shall have been bound is, is more important reading. That's a little bit beyond our scope today. But nevertheless, the point is that Jesus has this dialogue and he shows that uh, Peter has finally come to, his, to the right understanding. His self-identity cannot be found apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1 John, John goes on further to say that we are his children, but we don't even yet know what we're going to become because when he appears, we shall see him as he is. We're like him now, but we don't know what the glory is on the other side of the veil. That we are going to be transformed at the beauty and visitation of Christ. That when we see him, that we will become something far greater. 1 Corinthians talks about it uh, in chapter 15. As there is one glory of the sun, the moon, the stars. And Paul goes through all the different parts of the creation account in Genesis and then he goes on to say, but we don't know what we will be like. Isn't that a wonderful promise? I think the open-ended promises are much better than the definitive promises. More than you could ask or think or imagine. I can imagine a lot. So, Matthew records Jesus' explanation with his disciples in a summary form. And I think that Matthew does this for one reason— and this reason is that Jesus did not only one time say this to the disciples. That Matthew is using his own words to summarize what Jesus had been saying in multiple accounts and multiple ways. Look at this. This is not a quote from Jesus. This is Matthew's summary, his faithful recording of what happened. He said, from that time, Jesus began to show it has this notion in the text of this ongoing perpetual teaching that Jesus was somehow trying to get through the spiritual blindness of his disciples, that he was making this a major focus of his teaching to them in those days. From that time, Jesus began to show that he must, and that's the key word we want to focus on, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And so I want to look at this in four ways, that the necessity of Jesus Christ's sufferings can at least be seen in these four dimensions or these four emphases. The first one is that Jesus must suffer and be killed because the will of the Father requires it. And it is exactly for that reason that he came into the world. If you were here during our series in, in Hebrews, you may remember this from chapter 10, that Jesus, when he was entering into the world, he read that I've come to do your will. Of me it is written in the book, sacrifices and offerings you've not loved, but you want uh, sorry, uh, blood, blood offerings you have not required, but you require mercy, sacrifice. 
And so Jesus comes into the world for that explicit purpose. That is the first way. Jesus does not come to do his own will, but in the incarnation, he, as a man, submits his will to the Father's plan. We see that very clearly, of course, in John 17 as he's praying. He prays, not my will, but thy will be done. There's no division in God, but in his humanity, Jesus learned obedience through his sufferings, and he voluntarily submitted to the Father's will. He comes, therefore, not just to fulfill the unbreakable promises and prophecies in Scripture. He comes as one who loves the Father's will. His love is to do the Father's will and to glorify him. In that high priestly prayer, Jesus actually says, I have glorified you. I have accomplished the work that you've sent me to do. Now glorify me together with you with the same glory that we had in the beginning. And what's so beautiful is when you get to John 17, having experienced transfiguration, you see there's something much more glorious at the cross. But that's a few weeks from now. Second, Jesus must suffer and must be killed for he alone can deliver those who are trapped in sin. Hebrews again says that he came, he appeared once and for all to put away sin. The reason he had to come, the reason he had to suffer and to die was that those who were trapped in sin could not escape it without being delivered from sin. Christianity is not a self-improvement scheme. You cannot work your way into salvation. Rather, Jesus Christ must ransom you. The third thing is Jesus must suffer and be killed because of his desire to be with his people forever. Not only does Jesus love the Father's will, not only does Jesus, not only is Jesus the necessary one to deliver all those who are trapped in sin, it not being able to be done any other way, but he must do it because he wants to do it. That's so important because this Just like Simon found his identity in who Christ was, so also all Christians are supposed to find their identity in Jesus' love for them. In Jesus' love for them. Jesus' great love for his bride and flock causes him to desire to lay down his life for the sake of, of his people. And not only that, it's not just in the atonement, it's not just delivering from them, them from sin, it's also restoring them to himself so that he could have communion with him. The scriptures say that his ability to endure the cross was directly from the joy which he thought about coming to him in the future, and then began to allow that to motivate him to suffer in the cross, despising the shame, and yet clinging to his cross. You see, I don't believe that when Jesus says, take up your cross, he is calling us to do anything that he did not do himself. He took up his cross and he clung to it as he was on his way to the place of his own execution. The reason he clung, the reason he must suffer is because of what it produces, not just for us, but produces for him. And that is, that's so audacious to even say If the scriptures didn't teach us that, no one could ever think that. That Jesus Christ somehow loved us, loved us and and had some notion that there would be a joyful communion with him should he go through this. That is just unthinkable. That is beyond anything that we could absolutely ask for. And finally, Jesus must suffer and be killed that he would triumph over sin and death in the resurrection. His death and resurrection will one day culminate in the delivery of all of his people from their last enemy, and that is death, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. The last enemy to be defeated will be 
death. And in fact, the New Testament says that those who by baptism enter into his death, that is the the baptism which looks to God in faith, that they have already begun to taste of his death. They've been baptized into his death. They're already beginning to have communion with Christ in his death so that they would have fellowship and communion with him in his resurrection. That is what Matthew means, and so much more than that, when he says that Jesus was telling them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. Though all of these are precious and sweet things, attending the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Peter has bought into a lie. See all of the magnificent things that we just talked about? That Jesus comes to do the Father's will? That Jesus comes to deliver those who were trapped by sin and death and couldn't escape themselves? That Jesus comes because of the joy that he anticipates he will receive? That Jesus comes to die because he is going to defeat death and trample all evil powers in the cross? All of that is the wonderful benefit of what Jesus will accomplish in his death. And Peter says, never do that. Think about what is going on in Peter's heart and mind and eyes. He's, he's seeing naturally, he's seeing without the Spirit of God, he does not understand the things of God. And Peter thought he was being godly and rebukes the truth himself. Think about this. I'm always encouraged whenever I read the story of them in the, in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. Master, do you not care that we are perishing? Asking that sort of question to the Savior of the world is very bad theology. And that bad theology is displayed by heart actions that are sinful. Look at what Jesus says to him. He, he rebukes Peter, and he contrasts, contrasts this with his earlier blessing. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because heaven revealed this to you, not men. He goes on to say that you are Peter, and upon this rock, the rock of revelation of who the Christ is, I will build my church, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, I don't, mean, I don't think that means literal keys. I think that means spiritual understanding and insight. It's a little far afield today. But the point is, look at what Jesus had just rewarded Peter with, these wonderful words of commendation and, and approval. And now he calls Peter Satan. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Isn't that interesting? He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are thinking about the things of man. He's not thinking about the things of the devil. You see, man-made religion is Satanism. You don't have to worship Anthony LaVey and, or whoever that guy is and read his book, the, the Church of Satan. That's not the only Church of Satan. In fact, the, the New Testament talks about the false synagogues that don't receive the Messiah. Those are synagogues of Satan. The point is that Jesus is saying that you're thinking about man. You're not thinking the things of God. And Jesus was a man who was thinking the things of God. In calling him Satan, Jesus teaches Peter that self-determination and self-preservation are demonic doctrines of practice. You see, doctrine is not just intellectual. Doctrine is what you live. You are living a theology. Whether you understand that theology or not, you are constantly living a theology. And the theology that Peter was living in rebuking the truth of God, telling him that he should not redeem the, the people of the world, was one that was satanic. After teaching his disciples that they that he's going to suffer, 
Jesus then teaches them that they also must suffer. It's so important to see these passages in the context because we they're so familiar to us that we actually remember them and we don't think we don't remember the context they're in. But Jesus is only inviting us to do, he's commanding us, excuse me, to do that which he was willing to do. Jesus does not call you to suffer and die and take up your cross unless he himself has done that same thing. Indeed, he does. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. One of the questions that I think is helpful in hearing this from Jesus is to ask yourself, have I ever denied myself of anything for the sake of Christ? I, I usually would answer no. You know, if I feel this great spirit of prayer coming on me, I first go get a coffee because I'm, I'm going to be there a while. Now, I, I don't think you have to be legalistic. I don't think that's necessarily legalistic. But I think that Jesus, in talking about denying oneself, is, is hitting home a lot more to those sorts of comforts we, which we uh, focus on and, cl- and pull to ourselves and not on the sort of things which deny the flesh for the sake of communion with God. I'm deeply zealous that God would restore the the signs and wonders anointing to his church, and he is doing that in some places around the world. But I believe that that is only able to be encountered and sustained and survived by someone who lives a lifestyle of prayer much like Jesus Christ did. Matthew 6, Matthew 5, they tell us that Jesus had a habit of going away and praying by himself. If you think you're qualified for spiritual leadership and that's not something that you love to do or want to do, then you are deceiving yourself. The only type of spiritual leadership that is safe is a leadership that is done in private prayer with God. So he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Isn't it interesting that he talks about this in the context of denying yourself? You can have a 401k, you can have many children, you can have doctorates or bachelor's or master's degrees, you can have a high school diploma, you can have a really awesome career or a title, a really neat title. I remember the day I got some business cards at a former job and it said senior developer and all the other guys that I knew, it just said developer. And I, I, in that moment, I was like, man, I've, I've arrived. <laughs> the point is, what will it profit you if you've become a senior developer and you don't have any life in God? What will it profit you if you get a better job and yet ultimately are going to the lake of fire? It won't profit you anything. And in fact, for eternity, you will constantly regret the way that you've lived your life, looking at the things of man and not the things of God. Just as he was rejected by the people, so also he tells them they'll be rejected by the people. In John 16, it says that there is coming a time that those who persecute you will think you are, they are doing the will of God. Isn't that amazing? There's no negotiating with that. If someone believes that they are doing God's will in killing you because of your witness to Christ, that's not something that you can talk your way out of. That is not mutual toleration or safe spaces in the least. That is nothing other than having to grin and bear it and have, by the Holy Spirit, have the grace of God to persevere. That is what Jesus is setting them up for. Jesus teaches them that they ought to obey him now, for the time is short before the coming judgment. 
He says in verse 27, for the son of man. Now look at this closely. This is not disconnected from what he was saying earlier. He says, for what will it profit a man if he loses, if he gains the whole world and loses his soul for the son of man is going to come. He's tying their immediate renouncing of pleasure, their immediate renunciation of self-preservation and the joining up with a people who will be persecuted as the only wise thing to do because judgment is coming soon. Verse 28, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, if you don't understand what Jesus is saying there, it's actually quite clear. I don't have time to develop it, but I will assert it. Jesus prophesies that some will not die before they see the Son of Man coming. And some people have taken a weird verse in the book of John that deals with Jesus rebuking Peter about Peter's question about what's going to happen to John the Apostle. And Jesus then says to Peter, if it's my will that he should remain until I come, what is it to you? Now, a huge number of Christians throughout the ages have strangely abstracted that into this idea that John the Apostle is living in the world somewhere right now. And I just want to tell you that that is false and a heresy and textually baseless, and it has no realm of reality in it at all. The point is, what Jesus is saying is there is a sort of coming that he is going to accomplish, that none of the, that some of them, although some of them were martyred, James was martyred before this, a number of the other disciples and apostles were martyred before this, but he was saying that there were some standing there who would be there when he comes in his kingdom. Jesus did in a way, though not in a full way, though many of them had already died, some of them remained, he came in a judgment coming against Jerusalem in 70 A.D., if that's a new idea to you, I would encourage you to talk to one of the pastors at this church, and we would love to help you see all of what that is in the New Testament. The importance is this. Just like we studied in the series on Hebrews, there were some who were a part of the community of Christians who were slipping back into Judaism, and if they stayed in Jerusalem and in the rest of Israel, they would have been caught up in the judgment, and they would not have been able to flee. Those who take up their cross, those who maintain faithfulness, their persecutions will drive them out of the cities that are going to be judged. And if you read the book of Acts, you can see that very, very clearly. The people in the city of Jerusalem at some point get a prophecy to begin. That's what Jesus says when you hear flee to the mountains. That's the point. The city is going to be surrounded as it was by the Romans. Nevertheless, we exactly like the disciples, even though they were living in a different context of judgment, we always have a context of judgment. That is the judgment at the white throne, which comes at the end of our age, but also comes at the end of our life in a way. We, like the disciples, face this same temptation, but Jesus doesn't say that taking up your cross is Christianity 2.0. It's kind of an old phrase that was, the, that's the last decade kind of phrase. The point is, he says, if anyone wants to follow me, he has to take up his cross. He doesn't say, if you want to become a better Christian, if you want to mature in your Christian life, then you have to take up your cross. Those who call themselves Christians who are not taking up their cross, according to Jesus, are not following him. They are like those who he says, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, ye workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. I never consented to fellowship with you. You've claimed my name. You've claimed my name in vain. You've broken the commandment to honor the Lord's name. 
You've applied it to yourself without having the substance. So this is exactly what Jesus is saying. Now the context of what we've just seen and what we know is coming in just a few short weeks after this sets the stage like a diamond, a pure white diamond shining with great light on a backdrop of black felt. This is exactly what the transfiguration is. It could not be more paradoxical if you understand what he's saying and where he's going. Directly after teaching his disciples, a week later, he then takes three of them up to the mountain. Though his glory was set aside and veiled for a very short time during his earthly incarnation, here on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see a small foretaste of what's going to to take place. That is, Jesus is going to receive that same glory that he had with the Father. And yet, even at the cross, it is even more veiled than now. Verse 1 of Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Verse 2, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. If you remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel sees one who is like a son of man. And he, he actually falls down as one who is dead. And then Jesus touches him and says, do not fear. Same thing happens to John in the book of Revelation in the first chapter. He sees Jesus just like this. In fact, I think that what the Spirit was showing John in the Revelation was an exact uh, representation of what takes place here. That John is able to see Jesus Christ incarnate, fully forever resurrected, but here before his resurrection with glory that attends him. After going up to the mountaintop, Moses and Elijah come and speak with him. What's so interesting about the way that they uh, reference this, uh, it says in verse 3, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. You see, for a, a first century Jew, the idea of going up to a mountain is to try to fellowship with God. And here in this passage, Matthew records that Moses and Elijah show up to support Christ. They're testifying of Jesus Christ and his glory. In 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, it says that those who wrote the writings, the scriptures beforehand, were searching by the Spirit of God within them concerning who was the Christ, the sufferings of Christ, and his subsequent glories. And so I believe that Moses and Elijah are right now speaking to Jesus, and they're reminding him of everything that's in the scriptures, and they're discussing together. They're having this wonderful godly fellowship because Moses and Elijah suffered great things at the hands of their people. Moses himself put up with a whole generation for 40 years. Jesus' earthly ministry was three and a half years. And Jesus, of course, is God, but he's also a man. And I can't tell you how much I would never want to be Moses as much as Moses sees the glory of God, he deals with 40 years of grumbling and complaining and rebellion and constantly having to fix mistakes. Same with Elijah. He's doing works, and yet he wasn't sent to Israel, but to the surrounding nations. The point is that they come and they represent as a way the law and the prophets which speak of the Messiah and his work. And they were speaking with him, and I believe they were encouraging his heart. Just like when he was in the wilderness at the beginning of Epiphany, angels come and minister to him. That's nothing to, dis, uh, to discount the glory of Jesus Christ, to see that as a man, he received help from the Spirit and from, uh, from angels. He also received help from the woman who anointed his body with, with her oil perfume. Uh, 
Jesus Christ receives their fellowship and communion, but he does it in this way, that they come to show forth his glory, and their presence testifies that Jesus is the capstone of the testimony of God to his people. That as we saw at the beginning of our series in Hebrews, that Jesus was the final word that God in times past had spoken in many ways and many times, but he is the final word. And therefore, it says in verse chapter two, it says, therefore, we must pay all the more attention to what he's saying. And look at how that folds into what the father does Right here, just as at his baptism, the voice of the Father booms from heaven concerning the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. But not only that, the identity of Jesus as that great prophet which Moses spoke about beforehand. He said to the people of Israel that in the future, God would rise up a prophet like unto me from among your brothers. It is to him you must listen, and him you must obey. And if anyone does not listen to the words of that prophet, God will hold it accountable to him. That is to say that the whole exact teaching of Jesus Christ in this transfiguration account, with the Father's voice confirming, was to give the disciples a clear picture. He's the great prophet, and we must listen to him. And those who do not listen to him are destroyed in the judgment. Verse 5, he was still, Peter was still speaking. We're actually going to ignore what Peter says today um, we, because we don't have time. He, he's talking about the, the festival of booths. He wants to camp out there, but we're not going to diagnose that too much. He says, this is my beloved son. Uh, the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He's not just approving of Jesus Christ, he's also highlighting him as the final word which was sent. The final word, the clear revelation of who the Father is, such that he is the capstone, not dismissing the law and the prophets, but being the final brick to be laid on that great wall of testimony against those who claim to be God's people and yet do not wish to follow him. And so Jesus is the one, he is the great prophet to whom we must listen. And then Jesus continues to be prophesying. These things were shown to these three, Peter, James, and John, for their benefit as well as ours. For them, it was to create radical uh, constancy in their heart, that they would not turn away from Christ in the persecution that they were to receive, but also for our benefit, that what they would write down in the New Testament epistles and writings would become spiritually savory to us, that God was testifying to what his son was doing, And that testimony has been faithfully recorded. And so over and over again, in this passage, in Hebrews, in 1st and 2nd Peter, in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, over and over again, we are warned not to claim Christ, but not do what he says. We are warned not to attend to the things of God, have spiritual trappings, and yet have no substance or reality in ourselves. So after coming down, Jesus reiterates his command not to stir up trouble before the time. Isn't it interesting that here at the end of Epiphany, the season in which Jesus is being displayed as glorious, multiple times in this reading alone, in verse 20 of chapter 16, and then here in verse uh, 14, uh, sorry, verse 12 in chapter 17, he says, uh, or sorry, not verse 14, verse 9 in chapter 17, he says, tell no one about this. Jesus was revealed not just to the people in a general way, not just to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as a stone of stumbling. He wasn't just revealed to the religious leaders and political leaders of his day, but he was also revealed in a special way 
to his disciples. And it is exactly his disciples who have access to know who he truly is. They don't earn their discipleship, but receive it for God chooses them. After this takes place, the disciples ask a question showing that they're confused about the scriptures. Now, what they have in mind here is that there is coming a day of the Lord, which Jesus is warning about. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his angel, the glory of his Father with the heavenly angels. And then they say, well, why do the prophets say that Elijah must come first? And this is talking about Malachi 4, 5, and 6. It says that before the day of the Lord, I will send Elijah to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I have to come and strike the land with a curse. And it is exactly that sort of prophecy, which if you understand the warning of current judgment on that culture and generation, begins to click in. What it says is, oh, God sent Elijah to prepare the family so that when Christ comes, he would find his people and be able to redeem them and bring them into the full kingdom of God. And yet, if they do not listen to Elijah, they won't listen to him and they will fall away in the day of the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus says is going to happen. Christ says that they rejected John as well as they rejected him or will reject him. Verse 10, then why did the scribes say Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him and they did to him whatever they pleased. You see, Herod set himself up as God by taking the head of John the Baptist. That is why we remember in our creed that Christ was killed by Pontius Pilate. The the whole point is that what Jesus is doing is he's saying that there are these rulers of the people who rightly express the will of the people, and all of them are doing whatever they wish to the sons, uh, sons and daughters of God, if you will. That is the people that God sends to them. The point is this, that in the transfiguration, we see the beautiful and glorious wisdom of God, that we see this wonderful diamond, if you will, of perfect theology, that Jesus Christ is deity and that he is glorious and that his clothing is whiter than anything that a man or a woman could make on the earth and that his face is shining as bright as the sun. See, Moses' face reflected glory like the moon does to our sun. Jesus Christ on the mountain is not just meeting with God, he himself is being displayed as God. And it is that sort of glory, that context, which you have to understand before you get to the cross. Jesus was not just a moral teacher. Jesus was not just a miracle worker. Jesus was God in the flesh, come to redeem his people. And as he says, they did whatever they wanted to Elijah, and they're going to do whatever they want to the Son of Man, that is himself. And you see how the poetry of this passage works? Jesus opens with, who do you say the Son of Man is? And then he goes on to apply it to himself, and he says, the Son of Man is the one who's going to be killed. He's going to be betrayed by the, the priests and the, and the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And it is exactly this sort of knowledge that we seek to renew within ourselves in this season coming up of Lent. The idea that we would pursue Christ to have a real salvific knowledge, a saving knowledge of Jesus, that we wouldn't be disciples who name him alone and have no real substance, that we would become like Christ in taking up our cross. But brothers and sisters, I tell you the truth, unless you realize what he has done for you, your heart cannot be transformed to take up your cross. You can never take up your cross out of mere duty or, or some notion of it's my right 
to do as a Christian. You have to take up your cross because you want a fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. The transfiguration shows us, like Peter uttered, that our perspective is often flawed, if not always flawed. That what seems to be a terrible thing to happen to us, actually God is performing an eternal weight of glory through that thing. That is what Jesus is doing in his transfiguration. Everything, therefore, in your life is opposite of what it seems. If you want to preserve your life, the only way to do it is to throw it away in serving God and serving others. If you want to not die, the only way to do it is to die faithfully that you don't be consumed by the second death. That is the judgment of fire. Instead of running away from the cross, you must embrace it. And in order for there to be a joy of resurrection, there first has to be the death of the cross. This is a mighty call, and it's absolutely undoable by yourself. And this is why I'm closing with this. Thanks be to God that Jesus did it because we could never do it. That's what it means to understand the gospel of substitution. That is, Christ took up his cross because I couldn't, because I didn't want to, because I was morally incapable of, because I was weak. Jesus denies himself, and not only denies himself, he suffers a death much more humiliating than I could ever even imagine. But not only that, God offers a promise that by faith in him, I can be renewed. I can begin to have fellowship with this one who is so utterly different and other than me. He can, by his work of his spirit, transcend that boundary and perform a righteousness in me, such that I would be able to have communion with him and it would be no compromise in God's holiness. Let's pray. God, we're so, we're so blind to your glory. Lord, we pray that you would do a deep work of repentance in us. Lord, there are so many, and I have often been one, who sit week and week, week in, week out, under the weight of preaching, and they never desire to enter in. Lord, I pray that you would transcend that distance, that you would do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, that you would perform a righteousness in their lives, that you would remake them according to your sovereign will. Lord, we thank you for the glory that we see in Christ as he ascends that mountain and is transfigured. We pray that you would call us to join with him, not just for the glory before the cross, but for the cross and the subsequent glories. That you would convince us of the rightness of spending our entire lives as a perpetual offering, walking in the truth, walking in the spirit, carrying our cross. We thank you, Lord, for the mighty promises of fellowship with you forever and ever. We pray that that would become the deep motivating joy of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.